Our next speaker, Roger Irwin, has been described by some as the father of investment consulting. I, think that, I believe that makes him blush. Roger is currently the global head of investment consulting at Towers Watson & Co. Uh, he's been with Towers Watson, or formerly Watson Wyatt, since 1989, where he started the investment consulting business. That grew over time to a global practice of more than 500 people, with clients uh, obviously spread across the globe. Um, his role currently entails client-facing work, professionalism aspects, as well as management. Um, he qualified as an actuary in 1983 as a fellow of the Institute of Actuaries. So in days gone by, there would have been some very below the belt and childish jokes about whether there was a real actuary or not. Fortunately, we've all moved on, especially the faculty actuaries. <laughs> he has master's degrees from Oxford, both mathematics and applied statistics. Um, uh, he's a member of the CFA board and has published a number of papers his career from topics covering asset allocation, manager selection, governance, and in that theme, his presentation for today is titled Sustainability and Responsibility in Investing. Roger, welcome to the seminar. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, what a pleasure to be here. Um, one of the um, opening lines I will make is that uh, I did qualify as an actuary, um, and one of the key reasons for that was that I could put together my MA with my FIA to become Mafia, and no other profession has such a cute sign-off. Uh, so, so a data point of, of being an actuary and being committed to um, that profession, uh, and I have been committed uh, to all things actuarial through my time. Um, but I have another data point, which is quite an interesting sort of more modern one, which is 2008. I was headhunted to be on the CFA Global Board. Um, really out of the blue, it just came from nowhere because uh, that board is very much made up of CFAs, and I'm not a CFA, but I have contributed to many CFA events in my life. So it was very, it was very nice to get to that, and I didn't really know what I would find, but I've been six years in that board role, and it's been an extraordinary sort of parallel uh, role to be playing and at the very least I now advise kind of all our associates on you know which route they take um, so is it going to be the CFA or is it going to be the actual qualification you know over the years that's that's changed quite a lot let me um, just sort of know the room here so if you are actually and I think of it as being fully qualified part qualified just put up your hands now I'll record that as about sort of 60-70% and then if you're a CFA, uh, put your hands up and that kind of is fairly much like 30% and any other professional qualification that I'm not going to ask you about but any others? Okay, a few, a few others, okay. So, and by the way, I know Kirshny and others, there are some people here who somehow have done both and I have an extraordinary admiration of anyone who's managed to get through both, which actually does you know, create a dimension of understanding, which is fantastic. So you know, I think this is a hugely professional room, and really I think that word is under-recognized, and we kind of need to bring it out from the shadows. I'm going to speak to that in a minute. Um, just the, the third data point about uh, what I do is that over a period of time in, in running a business, I sort of moved over 
uh, towards the client side. I always had involvements with clients, but I was able to kind of give up on the business, as it were, let others do that, and actually get back to what I love, which is the client side of it. And I've been lucky enough and privileged to be working with some of the big pension funds and asset owners of the world. And I work in something that's called transformational change of those organizations. And it started with work on the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Melbourne. So creating that uh, was, a, was a big project. Then moved on to the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, which is second largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. An amazing sort of place and culture and extraordinary fund as well. Then CalPERS, which I, I will speak to a tiny bit because it's an extraordinarily challenging governance situation with politics and with public, uh, public um, responsibility. That word's going to come up a bit. And, and I'm currently working on a, on a long project with the Railways Pension Funds in the UK, which is a very complicated multi employer situation and uh, again each time you start with raw materials and you kind of try and make a big difference with an organization and what I'm getting to is this word change so if there's a you know if there's a, a, a one-liner here it's investing in change and and change is hard but change is needed you know it's kind of along those lines now my quotation up there is actually about uh, the Yesterday is gone, tomorrow has not yet come. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, a, call to, a call to action, if you will. And it was great that Kurt actually had uh, something in the same sort of area, which was yesterday holds tomorrow hostage, which actually speaks to my change point, which is basically that we are creatures of habit. Change is hard, but change is really, really healthy. And if you think about it in the context of how much is, is shifting, if our organizations are changing less, than the speed of change on the outside, we're in trouble. You know, that is the, the basic premise. We need to match the speed of change in our organizations to what's going on on the outside, and that's very, very difficult. Okay, so I've got three parts to, to this talk, and uh, it kind of starts with a bit of context, then it goes into what I mean by change, how you change, uh, methods of change, and then I'm going to give you sort of some sense as to what the roadmap might look like, it's kind of my idealized roadmap, if you will, but, but how, how the future might look. So let's dive in. Now, the first thing I'm going to do is kind of invite you to think quite deeply about um, the industry you're in and your part in a, in a movement from the left, savers, asset owners, asset managers, companies, capital markets, markets, wealth creation, over to savers, returns, and externalities. And, that would be the only word that might surprise you in that chain, but it's quite important. Now, what, what we lack, I think, increasingly, and Anne spoke to this earlier on, is, a, is an understanding of the whole. We don't actually have that system-wide recognition. And, and often we don't think about, well, what's our part in this whole thing? And our part of it is, is really a responsibility to make this work. And we're all in this together. And so when you actually say, what is this thing? It's kind of the duality of investment markets is that they produce two things, really. They are absolutely the route to wealth and jobs and, and really social happiness. Markets make capital happen, which makes uh, the world go round, essentially. And obviously, they're more in our day jobs of instruments by which uh, wealth is accumulated and then paid out in the form of retirement income or something like that. And there's risk involved in that transfer. Now, 
ho-hum or what, you know. I don't think people necessarily look in on that enough. And also, I don't think they have enough appreciation of what is going right and what's going wrong in that list. And the key to it is really that we do have some issues in how clunky that chain is. And that clunkiness is really around four things, if you will. That there's a lot of cost in it. Um, that it depends on trust but actually trust isn't big. Trust isn't being monetized in that equation tremendously well. It's short term, which actually is losing opportunities. And last but not least, there's a growing bunch of externalities. Just quick definition, it's what economists refer to as the spillovers of what we do on unwit unwitting parties. And so obviously there, there, there is an externality out there that people refer to all the time, which is carbon, you know, carbon in the atmosphere is actually you know, having an impact on, on people over time, which actually they're unwilling, accept it, uh, unwilling to accept, you could say. Well, they have to accept it under current terms. It's not priced. And um, the, the kind of the formula by which we understand how difficult this is and why the shortcomings are there is actually captured really by the complexity in our situation here. And the issue of how many roles we are playing in this complicated thing. Again, Anne referred to this earlier on. So the, the kind of the word map um, shows, oh, this is the top 25 roles. I mean, I think you'll probably see what you do in this list here somehow embedded, randomly embedded, but in a sense it feels like that, that sort of spaghetti type of picture is really an indictment of the difficulties that we must have in order to make this thing effective. So I hope, I hope you're in that list, otherwise we're in deep trouble. So, um, so what about uh, a bit more context here? So, so first bounce of the ball, think rugby. I'm going to give you the second bounce in, in a minute. It's kind of got some predictability to it, hasn't it? Um, and um, Lewis Carroll was brilliant with what's called the Red Queen race, which is basically saying you have to run faster and faster in order to stay still. And throughout my career, ouch, how many years, every 31st of December, I've kind of looked back and I thought, wow, oh, I got through it. It, it, it was a good year, as it were, but I had to work harder this year. <laughs> every year has kind of felt a bit like that in the financial services industry. So we're all trying that much harder. Often, by the way, that harder is commercially driven, not so much professionally driven. So I think that we have to recognize how difficult that is. And of course, the Red Queen race is a brilliant illustration of the word alpha, which is basically that, that actually you have to work harder and harder to be that much better than other people because alpha is, after all, something like a zero-sum game. Now, the other thing is that there are two sort of really new kind of ways of seeing the world. And first, it's kind of like the investment opportunity set, which is what people refer to as the new normal. And the new normal is really based around a, a bunch of things that really are genuinely different this time. And so from that point of view, the world geopolitical map is be being redrawn from a concept which actually had the US in its unipolar uh, dominant position to a multipolarity where G20 matters so much more, and a G0. So G0 is calling out that on some issues, no one's in charge, there is no governance. And that actually creates many difficulties for the investment environment. We obviously know about the West deleveraging the rest emerging wealth situation, but it's, a, it's very complex, and it needs really a lot of rehearsal in investment portfolios. 
And I think we increasingly know that there are limits to the exponential function. There are limits to growth. It's an old phrase. Let's bring it back. The natural resource scarcity and adverse demography are real spooks in our investment environment and increasingly will become a dominant theme. So that's new normal. Now, there's new normal on investment strategy. And the common theme is the word risk comes up in each of these three here. So, so really, the system is at risk. If you actually go through Michael Lewis's new book, you will understand what I mean by the fact that the system actually has a, a number of connected points. They can all rather collapse under new technology, under new change. Risk factor allocation, we've been allocating to capital because that's what we have. Asset allocation, that's what we have. But really, um, investment needs to work more to allocate to risk, and people are doing that. And last but not le least, the risk framework that people have, framework first, quant second, you've got quant on the screen here, but that's your word, because quantifying risk is actually part of the deal, but a lot of this is assessing risk, which is a rather different proposition. Many of the risks that are really, really significant are not classically ones that we could ever assign a figure to. So a deeper, broader, longer risk framework is what people are working towards. Now, I just pitch at that as a first bounce, which actually we can do quite well with by, by being fast moving and executing. Now, a few thoughts about everything local here. I, I, I would seize on these as being very uh, characteristic of what kind of are in our business plans we're thinking about, we're doing through business as usual and business beyond usual. So the business as usual is very much that you have a regulatory framework that limits the amount of offshore. And therefore, you've got to optimize what you can do and what you can't do in that respect, dealing with the benefits of home buyers, which can be significant. Regulation here to help us, you know, ha, and also operational efficiency and technology, all of those things coming into the equation increasingly. And then the last, which maybe is a bit of a cheat to get onto this list, but I'm going to put it here because I think sustainability is one of the key dimensions to our challenge. And you may have said, well, hang on a minute, didn't he have sustainability in the title? And absolutely I do, but it is sustainability in its broadest terms. So sustainability is about ESG, but it's out about a lot of other things too. So here, you know, how you think about alpha with the other return drivers that make up an investment return, how you understand that, that pension funds and retirement schemes basically have a wider, more noble purpose if we see them through to retirement income vehicles and how retirement decumulation is extraordinarily efficient wherever we are in the world and represents one of the biggest challenges for people like you in this room. So I, I think that's a fantastic list of opportunities rather than difficulties. Now this is the roadmap that I use with asset owners when they go through change. I'm now into the second leg. Let's talk a bit about how to do change. And if it communicates reasonably to the back of the room, four disks are in front of you. Um, let me just sort of hit the, the messages out of the top here that asset owners, where I work mostly, these are the most important institutions because ultimately this is where new influence and new capital is being allocated. They have this wider context to their work. And if there's a way of looking at this, it's the extension Kurt was referring to um, EQ and IQ, and I'm going to give you another Q. It's SQ, which is the system 
quotient. It's how well you understand the system. And really, asset owners and all of us as investors have to understand the system much better. And this is leading to new thinking and new ways of doing things, changing investment framework. And, and I really argue this passionately wherever I go, that people's coherence of thinking, working, and action doesn't seem to be that good at the moment. And so how they can start from the premises of strong beliefs, strong values, and create coherence in everything that goes beneath it. And change is very much premised on the idea that we can straighten out a number of things that we're not quite getting right. NQR, not quite right. Many institutions are in that sort of frame. So change is really about doing the things that we know to be significant here, which is actually what the enterprise of an asset owner is meant to do, which is combine a governance budget with, an, with a risk budget. So governance budget, you know, term that increasingly is used, very soft, you could put figures in it, but by and large, it's how you do things, how effectively you're able to deploy your resources, um, obviously resources like people, like institutions, committees, like processes, like culture. All of these matter to how much governance budget you've got to execute a risk budget successfully. We think about most of the challenges of investment. They come because they're complicated, sophisticated, difficult, and therefore it's not worth going after them unless we've actually got the governance budget that's commensurate with the task. Now, the, the fascinating thing in my work is that Almost all of my clients dive into disc three. You know, disc three is where the action is, guys. You know, th there has been such a concentration on how to invest, on strategy, on manager lineup. Absolutely, it's critical. But really, it's, 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 a, it's a poor system that doesn't recognize a number of things that should be done better in the governance budget, which is how people do things. And actually building up that governance budget and recognizing that it's not just a constraint, but it's a variable that can be used to your advantage. And so working up how much governance you have is actually a, a very, very important formula for improving results. Now, I used to go with three disks. So you know what I'm about to come to. There's a sustainability disk there. And in many respects, a lot of people would argue, well, sustainability should be integrated with the policies disk. But I, I found it really quite neat to just put that on as an overlapping piece of the puzzle because it carries the metaphor that really sustainability is something that is additional to what we're doing at the moment anyway. You know, success would be that that disc gets converged and you see it in the policies. But by and large at the moment, people are not doing it that way. They're kind of additional considerations. And actually investing has got harder because we have to solve for that sustainability challenge. So I, I find myself not very often getting too much into the fourth disc, but actually in some respects it's one of the most critical of, of all the things I do is to kind of go through that sustainability framework with people. So just a, a few quick exhibits um, taken from um, sort of my world of, of how these things have worked through, and, and the, the quotes are actually all from, from Cowper's. And in, in many respects, um, what, what I found there was, was actually, it was, it was really refreshing to be working for that fund because it was so open with everything it did. It has to be public domain. And think for a moment about a fund that puts all its investment committee meetings live on the web. That's transparency. You know, that's quite 
brave in many respects to be doing something like that, but actually led to a certain culture of doing things where they had to be, they had to be effective. And if they weren't straightened out, they were in difficulties, and therefore they were an ideal sort of change opportunity. And, and culture and the people side of it was where a lot of this comes from. It comes, uh, it, one of the, 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 the maxims here is, if you can't change the people, change the people. It's a very important principle that actually, in many respects, how strong these organizations are will reflect the quality of the leadership layer. So, uh, so that was um, an example of a fund, very complex, and full of um, the new application of the word socializing. So, so to me, socializing involves getting into the pub, but actually there is a new application of that word, which is very, very important, which is the, the idea that ideas need to actually have some sort of life before they get implemented by people talking about them and reaching some common ground, the settlement of those ideas. So socializing ideas has become actually a, a it's an American import, but on the other hand, it, it does quite sum up what represents the challenge of these types of governance situation. Now, um, staying with change a little bit, I just want to give you um, a metaphor for, for how you see the big picture and the small picture. And I'm going to argue strongly that mastery of the big picture has become so much more important, really, because there are all these small moving parts, small and big moving parts. And the picture of the Queen in her Jubilee year, we're going back a couple of years here. Um, and here you have a picture that is 70 metres by 100 metres that was on the, um, the Thames to, to promote, um, it's an old picture, of course it is, but the, what's underneath it here, the key dimension is the chap who's actually putting the picture up and you can see him on her forehead, right? So, so he, think of it through his eyes, what, what does he see? He sees actually the job getting done, but he has no command of how it all fits together. And the metaphor for doing something successfully goes back to that, that SQ, system quotient as it were, the ability to see the system. Starting with yourself, that was why it was quite a cute start this morning, with, I think you've got a very joined up conference actually for what it's worth because it, it, it actually has fitted together really neatly. So the focus on self, thinking deeply about you and your purpose and working it out through the team that you work with and wider to competition, which is absolutely critical because it's intense and also through the stakeholders that exist who are ultimately your clients and situations here. Now, how you connect all that becomes a very, very much more important uh, component of, of doing the job well. So you kind of looking closer in and further out is kind of the maxim here. And by the way, the processes that people have in their brains have not been equipped to do that. If you think about in terms of the development of our cognitive ability, we have never needed to do that before. And so we've got to learn a new skill which is actually making all these connections, joining the dots. So the, the big thing here, I'm just going to go off and describe here, are, in a sense, what this means for asset management relationships in the culture and governance area, and what this means in the sustainability area. And I will be getting to ESG in that particular area. So I just got one slide, which actually is kind of um, experimental at the moment. Sorry it's so heavy with bullets, but the key dimension is that I think there is a change taking place in how asset owners and asset managers are related. And I think it does involve um, 
the relationships being deeper in the context of South Africa where actually you haven't got big lineups. I think the key component here is for those relationships to be deeper and provide more service than the ones that have gone before. And that's why I call out fewer, bigger, classier external relationships and the extension of the trust in those relationships. And in some respects, actually, it was very interesting listening to Anne talk earlier on, because in many respects, she's got a slightly more um, specialized framing of this. I, I actually just see it as maxing out the skills of the organization in your lineup. So I'm actually a little bit more soft with this model. We both kind of recognize that the models that you have in terms of manager lineup probably need to move on. But on the other hand, I think we also recognize that there, there are going to be different ways to do that. And my argument is that the trust that exists between asset managers and asset owners has actually been diminished over time. And actually the best asset managers can, can change that and can restore trust. The way they do that is by being measured in a better way. And I'm going to describe what that might look like in a minute. Now, I promise you to look um, at sustainability. And to me, this is the moment where a few people um, kind of aren't motivated, walk out the door. We have it bolted, so you're stuck here. So I'm going to just give you sort of two blasts on the sustainability challenge as I see it here. And first, start with the research finding, which is captured in a publication that Taz Watson put out um, a year or so ago called We Need a Bigger Boat. Um, many of you will remember the Jaws movie. And the Jaws movie was, this is almost the most famous quote from any movie, We Need a Bigger Boat. Now, here, the ocean is our opportunity, and it's vast. Um, th there's a lot of risk in that opportunity, which is lurking. My favorite word for risk, lurking. And what we have at the moment is a sort of small boat, uh, not quite equipped for the task. We need a bigger boat. So the, the task is actually the expansion of the methods and the, and the measures by which we, we track progress. Now, the big thing that's changing is the transformational um, outlook for our world. And I know a lot of people from time to time might kind of come to you and, and potentially exaggerate that, but it's difficult not to see a whole heap of new things actually being in front of us in our respective careers here, very new things. And resource scarcity probably is, is, is one of the most central of all. And so how all of our economies, politics, societies, environments, technologies, and capital markets deal with that is absolutely key. And our strategies at the moment are kind of doing this quarterly capitalism thing, in my view. Quarterly capitalism, uh, let's get a quarter's results out of this. Um, earnings are guided by quarterly capitalism. I know you've got six months, but it's kind of the same deal. And out of that, you are not getting the interpretation of some of the longer-term factors that really matter. And there is really, in my terms, a sort of plan A that we're doing at the moment, which is kind of like that. We manage, we maximize a whole series of shorter-term things. And it's absolutely understandable, and it's absolutely incorrect for a world of transformation. It's very easy to demonstrate that it's suboptimal. We have to think about pricing at the at, at longer term horizons, at 10 years, and deal with a whole bit, bunch of uncertainties in externalities in particular that will come and, and change the prices of, of what we transact. 
So essentially, the most obvious example of that is, is uh, carbon fuels and fossil fuels generally, which actually are potentially going to have to kind of ride through a very new environment of pricing and regulatory influence, which we don't really know about, but we just know it at some stage it's going to come. Now, there are many other longer-term sustainability things that are on my mind, but actually that one is just very, very tangible. Let me just have a quick go at using the methodology that's very settled now in our frame for consultants to help set or help settle, I think is the best phrase, our clients' investment beliefs. And here is kind of one of the ways that you can think about whether or not these are your beliefs or whether or not they're not your beliefs. But the critical thing is to make up your mind as investors, as re representatives of these key investment funds. So there is, I think, um, a, a bit of kind of, it, it must be important to think about these factors in investment beliefs. But the last one there, long-term investing can generate return premium relative to short-term investing whenever conditions are changing, is actually very deeply felt by me, but not every investor either believes it or does anything about that. So what we're calling out here is the idea that long-term investing has been better said than done. So that's interesting, and how that can uh, permeate the investment world is, is a challenge, and, and uh, I think some investors are, are meeting that challenge, but not all. And then drilling deeper with beliefs, the, the stranded assets thing, which is that, that um, so basic summary here is that the political will to contain climate change in the two degrees target says there is a carbon budget that we have here. And that carbon budget at two degrees or so doesn't allow for all the existing fossil fuel reserves to be burnt. That calculation can be done a number of different ways, but it's leading to that type of conclusion. By the way, there are many, I think, bits of research to me that are a little bit exaggerated with that. And really our job is to sift out that and come with our own values-free version of this as opposed to accepting values-laden approaches. Now, the, the key dimension to that is that if they do become stranded, then value investors won't get what they thought they were going to get from them. Although there is another version of this, which is actually we can adapt, and we will find our way through this. And really, that's a very tough call. I'm not actually arguing this is exactly my belief. And really, you have to start thinking about shades of gray and probabilities about whether or not this becomes the most realistic way of seeing the future. Okay, well look, um, I'm going to sort of give you a little bit more material moving forward here and, and suggest that there is a bit of a, a success blueprint. Um, my work on the CFA board, by the way, is very involved with an initiative that you might have seen out there called the Future of Finance. And that initiative is um, trying to have the CFA turn up and make itself, in different situations, the place where the debate happens. Uh, I have got a, a very significant involvement with the resource and environment part of the Institute of Actuaries as well. These are the areas where professions have a chance to contribute some thinking at a difficult moment in finance's evolution. And so I, I, the, one of the, the sort of advertising lines that the CFA throws out is, the future of finance starts with you. It's a very important co component that we are all influential in the way that we're operating in finance, 
and we have the chance to actually make certain differences with, with the investment world as we know it. And so this is my version. I mean, I make no bones about it. This is what I think should be um, a blueprint for evolving the investment industry. And I call it a bit of a course correction, if you will. Because if, if True North is our goal here, we're not quite there. <laughs> we, haven't quite got, we haven't quite got our, our bearings right. So three shots at this, uh, starting with what you might think of as almost the most philosophical element of, of the deal. Um, so I start with um, thinking about capitalism and is capitalism doing the job that um, we need it to do? Uh, often people refer to it as kind of the least bad system. I think that the concept of what was born in the US, uh, Milton Friedman and others, uh, market fundamentalism, and some of what comes with that in the finance area at Chicago School, actually its limitations were very evident through the global financial crisis. But it's not a system that anyone should throw away lightly. <laughs> uh, State-driven equivalents have a, a bunch of alternative difficulties which are pretty huge. So really there is, I think, a meaningful suggestion here that we need to balance certain things with guided capitalism of one sort or other. Now, is that the sort of thing that investment professionals should be thinking about? Absolutely it is, because we're instruments of this capital system. We should actually have a view about how that should come out. And in this list, the kind of the soft, squishy end of what we should be doing you'll recognize some of them as actually coming through with a bit of regulatory force. South Africa is one of the most interesting markets on the planet in, in terms of this reconciling some sort of social conscience with some sort of capitalist system. And so you, the, the guidance that is now given through CRESA and other areas for corporate governance and for the ESG area is quite strong. And it is saying these sorts of, of standards of stewardship need to be applied more actively and need to be more effective. That, and I think that does need some reflection because there is um, a, a means of operating out there where we buy and sell share prices and we don't do these things. But certainly if you think about it from that point of view, you have a system that is unguided and liable to actually go off the rails in some respects relative to a number of the issues that I've raised. So I do find it very interesting what corporate social responsibility is. Sometimes it's explicit. Google gives away a set proportion of its profits every year. I find that's quite a neat way of, of, of seeing things. On the other hand, sometimes it's a lot more squishy, difficult to, to pin down. Is it greenwashing? Is it genuine? Investors have to make up their mind because really out there, corporations have such a huge power over our respective lives. They have to make up their, their mind to apply that power for something of a greater good. And professions are absolutely in the firing line of actually doing something for the greater good. That's what a profession is all about. And at the bottom of this list is the, the very interesting area. I'm, I'm lucky enough to spend my time with these really big asset owners who are very influential in the whole scheme of things. Um, that they, they are making certain decisions that others kind of follow. They're the leaders of of the application of new capital and the extent to which they're moving in a certain direction becomes very important. But in one respect, um, it's very interesting to think a little bit about this special category of very big institutions called universal owners who, who basically 
you know, own a slice of the world. You know, Cowper's owns a slice of the world and will do so for at least the next 50 to 75 years. And so from that sort of point of view, it cannot really be realistic for it to be kind of selling and doing different things. It, it has an index type portfolio. It actually has to think about the systemic risks that are implied in that portfolio. One very interesting example that came up whilst I was working on Cowper's was, first of all, they had a big thing about the Sandy Hook massacre, which actually led them to, to challenge whether or not they should have Smith & Wesson in their portfolio. Just a very live example of difficulty marrying values with, with investment beliefs in that case. Very interesting alternative one here, which is to do with salt, sugar, fat, that, that actually they are very big investors, obviously, in the index proportions of companies like General Mills. And these companies are brilliant with taste, but lousy with nutrition. You know, sorry, but that's, that's the reality here. Now, Calpers is the number one buyer of healthcare services in the US, and its, its healthcare premiums have just been skyrocketing. So has investment in companies like General Mills served its mission, or hasn't it? And really, when so many of their pensioners have type 2 diabetes, that is a difficult question. We're full of difficult questions. That's kind of the theme of this particular session. Now, number two was really getting funds, as in asset owners and firms, to a new position, really trying to be more disciplined about how organizations work. A whole heap of things that, you know, that, it kind of could be the, the change agenda, if you will, examples of what I mean uh, down the right-hand side. But if I go to one, it's, it's always culture. Culture is the most sustainable characteristic of any organization I know. How things are done, what the key people value, how that's communicated. And culture is actually something that you can study in terms of good culture versus bad culture. And in my manager research life, one of the most important elements of success in research has always been assessing great culture in asset management organizations. Any organization that comes on to me and wants to talk about culture, very good sign. And, and you know, I think it's been under, undervalued because people haven't measured it. Measurement gives a subject respect, and until you've got that respect, it's not going up the list of things that people want, want to talk about. So measure culture, well, I would use the term assess. Now measure, so, but I said measure and I meant it because measurement gives a subject respect but it doesn't necessarily give it a rigor. And from that point of view, the key dimension is meaningful measurement, which we often don't get here because we're abs we absolutely obsess about um, the latest results. It's, it's obviously, that's true in corporations, it's true in pension funds, it's true across the world in our institutions. And really what we've, we've done is become hyper diligent we're looking at more and more performance in more and more detail, but what we're not necessarily guessing is some sense of the wider impact of how the organization is evolving, it, its qualities that actually lie in that governance budget and in how it enables future success. And so in, in all my work, it's very, very important to actually say any institution can be assessed. You can assess governance, you can score it out of 10. You can assess culture, you can score it out of 10. It's that sort of thing, they, these become a meaningful sort of change of emphasis where the soft becomes part of the narrative. So let me just try and, and, and draw it together with um, second bounce of the ball. Remember the rugby ball, 
pretty unpredictable when it's on its second bounce. And so you're thinking further out here, and um, the way to see that is that it's less predictable and it needs adaptability. So, uh, so it's really being responsive to things you don't yet know. That's what adaptability implies here. The picture tells the biggest story here, which is essentially our way of framing the investment challenge has been clustered with the pins at the top of the chart. Short-term performance has been the characteristic of progress. Understandably so, it's our diligence that's made us focus more and more on that. But actually what we're not recognizing enough are these softer elements that should be part of our equation. And if there's one mantra here, it is that the pins should be coming down that page. And more should be thought about in terms of how our institutions are drawing down environmental capital, are drawing down social capital when they do their stuff. And that, it matters hugely, not just to the institution's returns, it matters ultimately to how these funds are going to be enjoyed by future generations of, of uh, retirement retirees. And, and in that sense, um, I think that we have to think about how sustainable the system is if we just do short-term stuff. So back to my plan A. Plan A is not very sustainable because these other things matter. And really the plan B is really about long-term sustainable growth. So I guess all I would say is that there are um, more sophisticated ways of doing this. I am kind of, it's a big ask for everyone to do more than they're doing at the moment. Of course it is. On the other hand, it's very interesting to track opportunities for organizations to do it better. Winners and losers, I'm gonna argue that the asset owners of the world are actually starting to be the most influential. More quality goes to those organizations. The boards are being uprated across the world. And if you actually look at some of the best asset owners, they actually have the quality of the best asset managers now. And that's a very interesting change in emphasis. Uh, I'm gonna argue that trust is monetizable and it's up to all of us to make a difference with respect to how we are trusted and earn that trust. And I'm gonna argue that this word sustainability, which people go off and think is all about green, is ultimately just the obvious thing for us to be doing with our funds, which is to make them long-term efficient and also intergenerationally fair. And intergenerationally fair doesn't get into everyone's radar and it seriously should. So thank you very much for staying with me on that talk. Thank you, Roger. Any questions? Hi there, thanks, thanks very much for that uh, brilliant presentation. Uh, just a, two questions for you. Um, you you had, a, had it up as a point, but you didn't really touch on it. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts around this idea of longer-term mandates. Right. And then the other thing is, you know, if we are looking at the second bounce of the ball, unpredictability, long-term risks, I mean, what is the role, what should big asset owners be doing to be thinking about those risks and how resilient their portfolios might be in this changing world? Yeah. I love both questions. Um, so I did run through this slide quite quickly and I sort of stopped on culture and in many respects um, one of the most important um, pieces is, is the value chain. So thanks. And we have got a few minutes I think so we, we're good for Q&A. Um, so let me just give you a slightly roundabout way of, of coming at that. Now, so typical mandates have this, this kind of um, overbearing uh, discipline on, on quarterly results and 
relative to, to mandate results, benchmarked, um, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the index actually does cramp that. Now, I'm a, a big index fan because indices actually are a means by which you can certainly, you, certainly understand performance much better. And indeed, it is a sort of uh, it's a democratization of the investment process because indices carry huge power if you invest like that as well. But in this area, they're being kind of a bit misused in mandates is, is a big argument here. And I go on to develop it in meaningful measurement. So the mandate change and I have got a lot of live examples of how this works. And so, uh, they now have a 10-year track record, interestingly. It was to change the wording for outperform what could be MSCI ACQUI. Um, now it could be like outperform CPI by 5 or 6% per annum. Now, people are going to compare against the, the index, fair enough, but it's a comparator not the driving force for success, which is a real return of some sort or other. I know you guys in this room are not particularly impressed by CPI plus five or six, but actually that is a realistic target for a, world, uh, a developed world market portfolio starting with today's conditions. So from that point of view, um, now that psychology uh, kind of changes the nature of the portfolio away from long short positions against the index to something that actually is, is absolutely the high conviction that an investor can have. And so what we've seen when people have done that type of mandate, I mean, sometimes they've already had that investing style in their lineup, but they've been told, look, institutional mandates, we kind of need this, this benchmark and we need the quarterly returns to come out of it. So this longer term framework actually gets part of a different, um, uh, it gets set up differently, gets monitored differently. It's a change of psychology to some extent, but it has been successful. I mean, the most, the most obvious example of this is basically Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, to be candid. But a number of um, portfolios have been done this way. There is a very good track record of, of, of organizations that have, have met that particular achievement target. You know, a number of them are actually, of course, South African firms. Um, so there, there's been, I think, um, now, what you, you give up is a bit of the governance security comfort blanket of how it's going because CPI plus five, obviously the tracking against that is 15 or 18 or something. It's, it's a very big tracking so you can have wild swings in how that's going. But what you have in the psychology here is renting the capacity of the asset manager all its qualities being put into a, a portfolio that could be 15, 20, 25 stocks or something like that. I mean, it could be a bigger portfolio, I'm not saying it, but it's punchy because it's, that is the, the nature of skill being adopted. So long-term mandates. Now, by the way, why, why does that work? Well, first of all, it's not 2 and 20, and I, I seriously like things that are not 2 and 20. But also, it actually has that low turnover because portfolios put together like that kind of don't need to shift on that quarterly, six-monthly, 12-monthly basis. So I, I think that's, that's a merit well-merited design improvement in getting, I would tend to argue for this in global equity context, obviously it's had its, its place also in a South African domestic equity context. So from that point of view, that has been the, the real deal, as it were. Now your second question was asset owners, forgive me, it was a long time ago now, you were talking about the ESG risk part of their portfolio, yeah. So the conversations, it was also about the sort of um, what they should be thinking about. And really, you know, I'm gonna idealize, 
you know, the perfect um, investment committee, if you will. Um, a factoid of today, if you do a, a web search for great investment manager, you get uh, over 100,000 hits for great investment managers. If you do a web search for great investment committees, you get one hit. And it's a paper that I wrote, actually, a bunch of years ago. So the, the key element is that, that in an ideal world, an investment committee is, I'm going to argue strongly, for a peer-to-peer -peer type of organization that is close to their managers and can, can actually talk their language and understand what the managers are doing. So they get the input from the managers, but they're able to develop their own original thinking and their own style. And so, and when you've got to that foundation, you can start thinking about some of these very big picture issues that will affect their portfolios long term. Now, um, so I, I do work in sustainability with Towers Watson clients. Um, full disclosure, relatively few want to have this conversation at the moment anywhere in the world. There are some, but relatively few want to get that far with this conversation. So that they're actually more inc inclined to let the asset managers take on the role of integrating ESG. Now that's not a horrible situation, it's just not an optimal situation. Because at times, the leadership of the investment committee in these situations will make a big deal of difference. So from that point of view, it's, it's been really, really good. I mean, I gave you the example of Cowper's. The big thing at Cowper's was they couldn't settle their ESG beliefs and they actually involved uh, this process which went on nine months in order to actually get it down to something that they could all commit to. A lot of socializing to get to that type of outcome. So, I mean, I, I'm encouraged that more people are doing this. I think it's brilliant use of investment committee's time when they do it. Um, but I think we've got to be a bit realistic that it's a tough ask for many of the investment committees that we know and love. Time for one or two more. Any further questions for our visitor? Roger, um, much of what you say uh, seems like motherhood and apple pie, but guilty as charged. <laughs> but it uh, it flies in the face of human nature. Right. As anyone who stood in front of a board of trustees and tried to explain why you're on track when you're not in the top quartile. Yeah. Will any of this change simply by appealing to? Uh, to higher values, or will there need to be some form of regulation, some form of guidance? Yeah. Well, um, I, I can only um, agree with you that many of these principles just make sense. That's one of the ways of looking at it. Um, what's interesting about the investment world is it, 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 it develops through two discoveries. It develops through results and it develops through thinking. Sometimes that thinking is new, genuinely is new. Sometimes it's quite old and recycled. But the key to it is that too much of our, our brain is given over to that, we've got to have the results, we've got to have the results. So now what brain science has taught us is that we're wired that way and we have to therefore go against it, which is exactly your point. We have to do things that seem uncomfortable. And from that point of view, what, what I'm arguing for here is it stands to reason type of approaches more than actually I can prove it in the data. Sorry, track records, helpful validation, no more than that. You know, 
Uh, it's a very important principle. Now, from that point of view, therefore, what we have to think about is how we can institutionalize a few practices here that people are not preaching. Well, they might be preaching them, but they're certainly not practicing them. Um, we've got to institutionalize certain things to do better. And that is, it's got a word, it's governance. Governance actually does communicate something here which is different. Now, in one area, the governance things is if you can't change the people, change the people. I mean, it is, unfortunately, that's rather savage, but a lot of trustees across the world actually don't get onto that par with the investment proposition. You can argue that's kind of the way it's set up. I'm going to argue that you can set it up such that there is an overarching trustee board configured exactly as now, but actually you've got a, a, a very investment competent um, investment committee. Now, that's different. So you could say, well, hang on a minute. Um, I, I've actually promoted a solution there that is very different from the way it's done at the moment by institutionalizing change. I think there are one or two other areas with the way that people uh, set up their monitoring. I think that, um, and just genuinely reflections on these things. I'll give you another example, actually. This, um, the process that um, CalPERS went into um, in developing their belief system was... Um, much more sophisticated than the ones that I used to see five or ten years ago. Much more sophisticated. And so from that point of view, they were institutionalizing the use of a belief system. And actually, they check back every investment decision. Down the left-hand side, this is the proposal. Down the right-hand side, this actually tallies with this bunch of beliefs. Now, people didn't do that three, five years ago. So I think that's an improvement in the way that the investment process is, is actually being implemented. So I, I think that... that your point was whether or not regulation is required. Now, um, I, 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 I'm, I'm really in two minds about regulation being able to deal with some of those things. But I will, from time to time, concede that regulations have been big and hairy and, and positive. And the Miners Review in 2001 in the UK did change the quality of investment governance. It basically gave a description of best practice, which people adhered to. And your creaser, there is evidence that people have changed because of those points. Now, whether or not they're effective in doing things for the better, unintended consequence is a very pervasive difficulty with most regs. So I'm a bit in two minds about it. Thank you, Roger. I guess it's a journey. Thank you very much indeed. That was a fantastic session. Good to have had you here and we really appreciate you having made the journey to Cape Town. Thank you very much.